What writing had become for me was the way I center myself in every day and create the energy to go out and meet the world. And that still is one of the major blessings that comes to me from my writing. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm Colin Mustful, host of the program, and today I'm delighted to be joined by William Kent Kruger, New York Times bestselling author of Ordinary Grace, the Cork O'Connor Mystery Series, and his most recent release, This Tender Land. But if readers care, then it becomes an emotional involvement, and that's where the compelling aspect of any story begins. Kent Kruger is a nine-time New York Times best-selling author. Known for his Cork O'Connor mystery series set in the north woods of Minnesota, Kruger is also the author of several standalone novels, such as The Devil's Bed and Ordinary Grace. Kruger, who grew up in Oregon and now lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Minnesota Book Award and Edgar Award, given by the Mystery Writers of America for his book Ordinary Grace. His most recent novel, set in 1932 at an Indian boarding school in central Minnesota, is titled This Tender Land. Well, I'd like to start with your standalone novel, Ordinary Grace. Um, And in one of the book trailers, you say that you put in everything you know about storytelling into that book. And what I'm curious is, what was that moment like for your career, the buildup of learning all about storytelling and reaching that point where you could create something for readers like that? That was one of the most remarkable experiences I've had across all of the years that I've been uh, been a published author. Um, I cut my teeth on the Cork O'Connor series, which is uh, a mystery series set in the wilderness of northern Minnesota. And so I learned a great deal about how to tell a compelling story, how to create suspense and hold readers in suspense, how to um, create believable, complex characters, how to build themes into a story, how to weave the themes in. Um, so I, I've always looked at the Cork O'Connor series as, as the place where I learned the art of telling a good, compelling story. And when I finally found the voice that I wanted to use in telling this tale that had been in my head for a very long time, um, I was able at last to bring all that I had learned in the writing of those early stories to the creation of Ordinary Grace. One of the differences 
when I approached Ordinary Grace was simply the, the question of the language that I wanted to use. When I write a mystery, I want to use a fairly, um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound as if I'm talking down to readers, but I want to use a similar language in the telling of that tale, because what I'm trying to accomplish is, is primarily to entertain. Um, and so I don't want people to have to feel this daunting task of making sense of a, of a complex, complex uh, sentence structure. But in the writing of Ordinary Grace, I wanted a different kind of structure, a different kind of narrative, and a different kind of language to go along with uh, the story. I have to tell you this, my father was a high school English teacher. And uh, yeah, he taught me very early that words have power. Words, if you use them correctly, can move people in really mysterious ways. And so I wanted the language itself in this story to um, to to lift the whole sense of the tale. And would you say that that was just just self-taught over a, a natural interest just embedded within you? <laughs> yeah. uh, I uh, although I teach have taught writing uh, at, in a number of venues. If you asked me, can you teach somebody to become a fine writer? I think you can't. You can teach them to become a competent writer. Uh, you can teach them to how to the the art of creating a good story. But when it comes to um, all of the all of the more complex, the deeper sense of what a story is and how a story can reach a person's um, deeper than a person's really their conscious thoughts which is really what art is about, that can't be taught. And I think you learn that over a very long time of trial and error. I, I wrote a lot, I wrote millions of words before I ever had my first novel manuscript accepted and published. Well, I think that's incredible and certainly encouraging for writers out there who are who are listening to this and just how long that process takes but how fulfilling it can be in the end oh absolutely you know if you're getting into this because you you think it's going to be really cool to call yourself a writer or you think you're going to get rich and famous at it uh, you're barking up the wrong tree you're probably going to be disappointed but if you're if you approach writing uh, from the standpoint of doing it because you love the act of writing because you love um, what writing offers you in terms of uh, the artistic payback, not financial, but the artistic payback, uh, then it'll be an entirely different experience. And I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to feel like, even if they're not publishing, that they're simply wasting their time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if you could be a little more specific in how you incorporate some of those elements. And I'm, I'm thinking of your most recent book, This Tender Land, and you talk about it as a modern Huckleberry Finn, and uh, you talk about relating it to Homer's Odyssey, and in fact, your main character is Odysseus O'Bannon. Um, and I think the, the river is called Gilead. Uh, so certainly some big themes there. How do you tie those themes you know, into, into your storytelling? Well, you have to begin first and foremost with establishing characters that are believable uh, to a reader 
and that a reader cares about. Um, when I set about creating the four vagabonds, the four orphans at the heart of the story, um, I began with Odie because I had always wanted to write uh, an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. And so I conceived of a character, a huckle, a huck-like character, uh, and that became Odie O'Banion. Um, I had originally intended a character to be like the Jim character, Huck's companion, and Huckleberry Finn as he goes down the Mississippi River. But in my right from the very beginning, in my conceit, uh, I thought of this character as Native American. Um, and then as I thought more deeply about the story, I realized I was going to be dealing with a lot of larger themes and issues uh, than I had initially considered. And I needed to broaden my the whole framework of, of the, the, the characterization. And so I gave Odie an older brother, that was Albert. And very near the end of my thinking, uh, the fourth vagabond came in, little Emmy, six-year-old Emmy. I needed these characters to find a place in every reader's heart because otherwise the all of the travail, all of the trials and tribulations that they experience on the River Odyssey that summer of 1932 are simply academic. But if readers care, then it becomes an emotional involvement. And that's where the compelling aspect of any story begins. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think another part of your character is, is the setting, is the place. And you write a lot about Minnesota. Your uh, Cork O'Connor series is, is set in northern Minnesota. I know you were originally from Oregon, but tell me how you have decided to include Minnesota as such a, a vital place in your storytelling. Yeah, I do write profoundly out of a sense of place. I'm not native to Minnesota, didn't move here until my wife and I were both about 30 years old so that she could go to the University of Minnesota Law School. And I was kind of a gypsy kid before that. I had really lived all over the country, although I went to high school in Oregon. Uh, I only spent four years there. So I never really had anywhere that I called or thought of as home. Uh, but I swear to you, the minute we set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I felt absolutely in love with this place and with the people here. And so I always knew that when I really got serious about my writing, what I wrote would in some way, shape or form be a homage to this adopted home of mine. Um, I think one of the reasons those of us who are storytellers are storytellers is because for whatever reason, we have the capability of soaking up details of place. And when we create the story, it's like we wring out that sponge in our, in our head and all of those details that, uh, that have just been up there waiting to come out, find their way onto the page. And then that's where the, the artist comes into play finding the words to shape those images into something that the reader um, can actually see on the page or smell or feel or taste. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you find about the people and their connection to this place, to Minnesota? 
Oh, I love one of the things that brought us to Minnesota is the fact that uh, we are here a very compassionate people. And uh, I love, I have always loved um, our priorities. We take care of our own. We have always had a history of supporting education in a big way here. People read in Minnesota. Uh, people are huge supporters of the arts in Minnesota. You know, we have the Legacy Amendment that was passed uh, many years ago, added to the state constitution, uh, which allows a, uh, a portion of all of our taxes to go to supporting the cultural heritage here in Minnesota. And uh, a large part of that goes to, uh, to supporting our libraries and the programming that comes in, bringing in not just authors, but uh, musicians and artists of all kinds. Um, that's one of the things, one of the big things I love about the people of Minnesota. It's just their really wise sensibility. I don't know if it... I don't know if, I think in large measure, it's something that extends all the way across the Midwest, but it's certainly here in Minnesota. Yes. Well, have you, um, do you go out to the, the Boundary Waters much? Do you do much hiking or canoeing up there? Not the way I used to. <laughs> I, my, uh, my schedule as a result of my writing uh, has, has really kept me home, kept me away from the Boundary Waters, particularly for a very long time. So no, I don't. But you know, Colin, I do get out a lot. And I always, I, I always make sure that when uh, I know what season one of my Cork O'Connor stories is going to be set, and I, I make sure I'm up in the North Country in that season. So, so I can put in to the story the right colors and the right uh, temperatures and the right, um, what are people talking about? What are they wearing? All of those things that make that season um, feel realistic to anybody who knows the North Country. And in the creation of both Ordinary Grace and this tender land, I spent a, an enormous amount of time in southern Minnesota, there along the Minnesota River particularly, just soaking up that landscape so that it would I could make it real for the reader on the page. So every place that I wrote about in this tenderland, I visited. Um, and uh, the town of New Bremen that I created for Ordinary Grace is based on the town of New, the real town of New Ulm, Minnesota. So I spent a good deal of time in New Ulm and around New Ulm and on the river there, just, um, just absorbing the setting. Well, you mentioned your your writing schedule. That was something I wanted to ask you about because you are, in, as far as I'm concerned, you're incredibly productive. I think Iron Lake was published in 1999, and so in just this 20 year period, you know, you have more than a dozen books. And I, have I know you, books. I have 20 books. <laughs> okay, that's 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 very productive. And and um, I, you know, in interviews, you've mentioned that you you write every morning. And I, th I think you had said that you do it freehand. I don't know if you still do it freehand, but tell me about that writing schedule. Is it, is it stressful or do you find it relaxing? And, and what is it exactly? Well, let me tell you how the, that process began. I, I do, in fact, get up every morning at about six o'clock. Um, and when we weren't sequestering ourselves because of the coronavirus, 
I would go out to a coffee shop first thing and spend the first two hours of every day writing. Um, and then in the afternoon, I would go back to the coffee shop for another two hours of writing. I have always shot to write creatively three to four hours every day. That process began many, many, many years ago. In fact, just after we moved to Minnesota and my wife entered law school, I wanted to be a writer. But if I, if I was going to be the sole support of the family, the guy who had to keep a roof over our heads and food on the table, um, I had to find a way to meet those responsibilities and still develop as a writer. I was living just uh, a couple of blocks from this iconic cafe in St. Paul, a place called the St. Clair Broiler. Uh, and they opened their doors at six o'clock every morning, seven days a week. So I pitched to my wife this idea. I said, uh, Diane, if you are willing to get the kids up and dressed and fed and off to school so that I can go right first thing in the morning, I promise you that when I come home from my job at the end of the day, I will be the best husband, the best father you could possibly imagine. She bought it. So there I was every morning at the broiler at 6 a.m. with my pen and my notebook in hand. Pen and notebook because this was long before we had laptops. Uh, I sat down at booth number four and from 6 o'clock until 7.15 I wrote. At 7.15 I closed my notebook, paid for my coffee, went out in front of the broiler and caught a bus at 7.20 that took me to the university where I was working. So that helped me establish the discipline that I think is absolutely necessary to any artist. I don't care what medium you're working in. But, you know, Colin, it did something else for me that was even more important and that I didn't really realize until years later. When I look back on that time, I realized that if I wrote first thing in the morning, what I was doing was feeding something in me, something important, something that needed to be fed. And they gave me the energy to go out into the world and give to it whatever I had to give to it to keep a, a roof over our head and food on the table because I'd taken care of myself. What writing had become for me was the way I center myself in every day and create the energy to go out and meet the world. And that still is one of the major blessings that comes to me from my writing. It's never stressful. I always look on it with great anticipation. Doesn't mean it's always easy but it is always a labor of love. Well, I think that's very encouraging and, and very profound and um, very nice to hear uh, from such an accomplished uh, writer. talk about the history specifically in this tender land you have on your website you have some images um, that inspired the novel um, tell me about the research that went into that and then how you included that research into the novel and not only that but what can readers take away historically from a book like this tender land do you know this Tenderland is often being called an historical novel, which I find quite interesting because uh, it takes place in the summer of 1932, deep in the Great Depression. But I was born not very long after the Depression, and I grew up with stories my parents told about how they survived the Depression, got through it. 
so it, it never seemed that historical to me, but I was not alive during the depression. So in order to make it realistic, um, I had to make sure that the underpinnings for everything that I created uh, was factual. So I did an enormous amount of research. We have here in Minnesota, a wonderful resource in the Minnesota History Center. Inside the History Center is a place called the Gale Family Library, which archives, um, I think, pretty much every newspaper ever published in Minnesota uh, as far back as they were, were possibly able to uh, obtain the, the, uh, the issues. So I spent hours in the Gale Family Library poring over newspaper accounts of uh, 1932. What were people here in Minnesota concerned about? What was happening here? I looked at the larger picture of the United States, what was going on in a broader way that might have played a part in what the kids were aware of or their thinking as they were uh, having their odyssey on the river. Um, because I chose to open the novel in a Native American boarding school, I needed to do an enormous amount of research in that regard. Because my Cork O'Connor series deals with the Ojibwe population, I, um, I was, I've been aware for a very long time about that tragic history that involved the Native American boarding school system. But in order to make that experience feel real for the reader, I read an enormous number of first-person accounts by natives who had survived uh, the boarding school experience. And it was a horrific amount of reading and a horrific subject matter to, to deal with. In fact, I toned down some of the horrors in creating the boarding school experience that I put in the novel. Um, for Sister Eve, the Tent Revival show, I, uh, I read a whole lot, well, particularly I read Elmer Gantry, <laughs> relied a lot on, uh, on Sinclair Lewis's account of uh, what it was like to be uh, part of a, a tent revival show. Um, I, uh, part of the novel takes place in St. Paul along an area that's called the West Side Flats. The flats were very different back in 1932 when uh, Odie and, uh, and the, the other vagabonds land there. So I did a great deal of reading about what the flats were like back in those days and looked at all kinds of photographic um, documentation for the flats back then. Read a lot of first person accounts, memoirs of people who'd grown up on the flats in order to create it the way it should have been. Uh, back then, and I walked the flats as as it exists today, trying to imagine where uh, Gertie's would have been or the boat works. Um, so I, you know, I did everything that I could to make sure that this story was f the factual underpinnings were there, and that the story would feel um, as as real as I could possibly make it for readers. Well, I think you did a wonderful job of it, and, and I find it interesting to say that you did have to tone it down a little bit because that, that history is so startling for us today. Yeah, it's, it's the history of the Native American boarding school is not one that a lot of white people um, are aware of, and if I've been able to raise some consciousness in that regard, then uh, 
then I think I will have done my job. You ask about the historical context in terms of today. And you know, Colin, everything that all of the all of the difficulties, the hardships that those kids faced during the summer of 1932, are we're seeing exactly that today. We're seeing a nation divided, a nation afraid, um, a nation in which people are asked to be more generous than maybe they have been asked to be in the past. And so we're seeing a great deal of uh, compassion being shown, but we're also seeing the flip side of that, people who hoard and people who think only of themselves. And that certainly was going on back in the Great Depression. So I think um, the themes of the story are every bit as relevant today um, as they were back in 1932. And I think that's why history is so important and it's so important to revisit and continue to, to learn from it. And it reminds me of, of what, what you experienced in the late 1960s and, and early 70s. And you see some of those things coming out again now as well. Yeah, the great divisions in our society, uh, political and cultural divisions. Yeah, I, uh, I graduated in 1969 into a world that was divided by the Vietnam War. And I haven't seen that kind of division again um, until the, the uh, immigrant uh, crisis on, uh, on our southern border um, mm -hmm. has, has come into play. Well, uh, let me change the tone here a little bit. I, I want to get into maybe behind the curtain a little bit about publishing. Now, you have a, a Atria Publishing, and um, have you published exclusively with Atria? In terms of my novels, yes. I published uh, a couple of dozen short stories in other venues, but, um, but only with Atria Books, uh, Simon & Schuster, for my novels. I've had just a wonderful relationship with them for 20 years. Well, I'm curious about um, you writing this tender land. You, you say you had some very high expectations surrounding it. And, and the first time around it didn't, you decided it wasn't quite what you wanted it to be. What was that like working with your publisher and saying, Hey, I need more time. And what was it like as an artist, just having to decide to, to try at it, try it again? Yeah, well, the expectations. I've always thought of uh, this Tenderland as a companion novel to Ordinary Grace, and uh, and the expectations for that companion novel on the part of my publisher, on the part of my agent, on the part of readers who absolutely loved Ordinary Grace, the expectations were just enormous. And so the whole time I, I was trying to write the the companion novel, I was I was just felt crushed under the weight of all of those expectations. And the truth is, Colin, what I was trying to do when I made my first attempt was to meet everybody else's expectations instead of writing the story that spoke to me from my heart. But as when I, when I told my publisher that I didn't want to publish the manuscript I had written, they were quite understanding. They said, fine, you don't have to give us this manuscript but you still owe us a companion novel. When the expectation, when all the weight of those expectations got lifted off my shoulders, I saw the story I should have been writing. And it was the updated version of Huckleberry Finn that I'd been wanting to write since I was 11 years old. 
and freed of all of the expectations that had gone along with the earlier attempt, um, I found myself able to launch fairly easily into the writing of what became this tender land, which was an entirely different story than the failed manuscript. And it was not a difficult decision for me to make, to let that man, that first attempt um, remain unpublished. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was in fact quite liberating. And it was also, I think a very savvy thing to do business wise, because if I put that story out there, it disappointed me. I was sure it would disappoint readers. And, uh, and why would I want to do that? Well, I think it worked and, and I can speak from someone who lives in the Twin Cities. I cannot get a copy of that book probably for 10 years from any libraries. There's so many holds on it. The reception has just been marvelous. Everything that I'd hoped it would be, Colin. Uh, the reception for Ordinary Grace was uh, uh, just extraordinary and incredibly gratifying. Ordinary Grace won bunches of awards. It's been translated into a couple of dozen languages. It's sold... Uh, up to this point, nearly a million copies. And this Tenderland is on track um, to, to have the same kind of uh, reception among readers. I'm just so pleased. I couldn't be happier. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, before I let you go, I, I was curious about your transparency as an author, just being available, being available to your readers um, and doing things like this. Um, tell me why you, you've decided to be so transparent about the process. Mostly because it's hard for me to say no. When I, when I get an invitation, uh, as I received from you, uh, it's hard for me to say no to that. Um, and although sometimes I feel, oh, no, I've got this interview I have to do. Once I'm into the interview, I have a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun with you right now, for example. So I'm glad I did this. But it also, just in terms of the business, is a way for me to keep my name in front of readers. It's a way for me to help booksellers continue to sell my book. Um, it's a way for me, without being able to actually do in-person events, continue to connect with readers everywhere. And I think that's important for every author. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what you've been working on lately? Sure, I'm working on the revisions to number 18 in my Cork O'Connor series. It's a novel that will be called Lightning Strike. For those people familiar with my series, it's a prequel to the Cork O'Connor series. It uh, picks up Cork O'Connor when he's just about 13 years old. Um, normally, my novels are released in the fall, but this one won't be released this fall, due primarily to the coronavirus. Um, and uh, I think you're gonna see a lot of books that would typically be released this fall, being held until next year. Mm -hmm. So this new novel, Lightning Strike, won't be released until the fall of 2021. But I swear to readers everywhere, it will be worth the wait. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. I've been talking with William Kent Kruger, author of the Cork O'Connor Mystery Series, Ordinary Grace, and most recently, This Tender Land. Kent, thank you so very much for joining me. It's been my pleasure, Colin. 